Good morning, Grace. What a powerful song we were just singing, written by Martin Luther, this man who certainly knew what it meant to have battles in his life, physical, political, and most certainly spiritual. And those words are so important for us because we too are still in a battle. We may not be in exile. People may not be trying to kill us, although we are probably more in touch with our own mortality than we've been in a very long time with this virus and all of these concerns that we have where we can feel so out of control. But how good to know that God knows we're in a battle. He warns us to be on guard because we're in a battle, and he gives us everything we need to win this battle. And we are assured of winning this battle when, as this hymn said, the right man is on our side, and that man is Jesus. He's the one who comes and wins the battle on our behalf. And because we have Jesus, we have a sure victory. No matter what our circumstances may bring from day to day, Jesus brings the victory. But there's another line in that hymn that Kenny pointed out for us this week when he sent out the sermon prep. And it's so important that not only is Jesus the right man on our side when we trust him by faith, but the spirit and the gifts are ours. That's a great line in that, that I hadn't really paid much attention to until until Kenny highlighted it this week, but what a beautiful thing, not just to say that Jesus is the right man on our side, but he himself sends the Spirit to give us gifts to overcome in the midst of the daily battles and ultimately in the ultimate battle, but he gives us the gifts that are not just for our own survival, but for the edification of the body. That's what this is all about. And I love the passage we're in this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so if you have your Bible, please open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm also aware that you are sitting in your homes most likely, and the the children of our church are present with you. And so I do want to give you a word too. Hello, children. I'm glad you're all here. And I want to ask you a question. Do you love animals? I hope you do. Because animals are a beautiful creation of God. Even possums, which I admit are hard for me to like at times. But even possums, animals are a beautiful gift from God. And throughout the Bible, God uses animals to teach us things. He even used a donkey to actually talk to a man named Balaam to teach him some very important things. But I love animals. I do. Donna and I, my wife, were just driving down a dirt road on Friday, and we came across four deer that were just lying down in the road. And they looked at us as if to say, what are you doing on our road? And we had to ask them permission to go by. And it was just wonderful. I love seeing them uh, out there. And uh, we have a dog. We have a cat. Even as I was preparing this message, my cat kept insisting on sitting on the keyboard of my computer like she often does. I love animals. And there's an animal that I love that my wife especially loves. And it is a sheep. I love sheep. I want to read to you like I did last time when I preached from this excellent book we read during our Bible time as a family, Sally Lloyd-Jones' book, Thoughts to Make the Heart Sing. But listen to what she says in regard to a very particular animal called the sheep in the Bible. She says this, What animal does the Bible say 400 times that people are most like? Oh dear, it's sheep. Sheep aren't clever at all. They're foolish. For instance, sometimes they just topple over and can't get themselves back up again. They just lie there. And actually, she has a picture. I don't know if you can see it, but it's a picture of a sheep just upside down, helplessly on the ground. And that's a reality. One time, actually, I was with... Kenny Clark, who was just leading us in worship, and we were in the Lake District in England, and we were on a sheep farm that was amazing to take part in. Kenny and I went for a walk one day, and there was a little lamb that had fallen in a little stream, and it was going to die if someone didn't save it, and I'm happy to say, I saved the life of this little lamb. Yes, I don't know whatever happened to it, but 
I saved it at least temporarily. But there, there's a little lamb, and they can be very helpless. And that's what happens to them. They're constantly falling off cliffs or going to unsafe places and getting stuck or eating poisonous things or getting hurt or running off and getting lost or not finding their way home again, even if their fold is in plain sight. So you see, sheep are completely helpless on their own and desperately need a shepherd. And God says, we are helpless on our own and we desperately need a shepherd, which is why he gives us Jesus. And listen to what it says in Isaiah 40, 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. Is that beautiful? He gathers the lambs in his arms. And then let me read this next one. Uh, Even when the shepherd finds his lost sheep, It goes rushing all about. And the only way he can round it up is to seize it, hurl it to the ground, bind its legs, and throw it over his shoulder and carry it home. The poor sheep doesn't understand. It thinks it's being captured and killed. But the shepherd is saving his life. And sometimes we don't understand what God is doing in our lives either. It may even look like God is hurting you. But you can trust your shepherd who loves you. He carries you close to his heart. He will carry the lambs in his arms, Isaiah 40 says, holding them close to his heart. God holds you close to his heart. And even when things in life make it seem like he isn't caring for you, or maybe even he's intending to hurt you, please know that God is the heart, the God who has a heart of a shepherd and loves his sheep. And even when life is hard, God is working for our good because he loves us like a shepherd. I don't know if you can see this picture, but it's a beautiful picture of a shepherd holding a sheep close to its heart. And that's how God feels about us. And this morning's passage is very much related to this. God cares for us as a shepherd because he gives us the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the one who cares for us. Jesus loves us. He cares for us. He lays down his life for us. But then he tells us that he is going to send another comforter, the the, the Spirit of God who will come and care for us. He'll come alongside and care for us, Jesus says, in an even better way than he cared for his disciples for the 33 years he was on earth. He says, it is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Spirit won't come. That's what he says in the Gospel of John. So the Spirit is this one who comes and cares for us in an even better way than when Jesus was here in the flesh for 33 years. That's what he tells us. The Spirit is the one who comes alongside us and loves us and comforts us and enables us and empowers us to live victoriously in the Christian life. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul wants the Corinthians to know and wants us to know this morning. Listen to these amazing words as we continue our series through 1 Corinthians and we arrive here this morning at chapter 12. There is so much helpful information in this passage. So let me pray as we go to it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that the same spirit that inspired your word is working right now in our hearts as we are scattered all over the place. He's there, present and active, and enabling us to not only understand your word as you intend for it to be understood, but transform us through it is what he's doing. Lord, please help us to be yielding to the work of the Spirit in our lives. I pray he would even be bringing that yielding And that we would learn good and vital truths for living out the Christian life this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, listen to these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we listen to the Apostle Paul speak to the Corinthians and to us. 1 Corinthians 12, 1. Now, Concerning spiritual gifts, probably as he has been doing through this book, answering yet another question that the Corinthians had previously asked him in a letter they wrote. Now concerning spiritual gifts, 
Now, your translation probably, as mine, says spiritual gifts. But it's important to know that this is actually a more general term. Translators say spiritual gifts because of the description of what's happening after in this passage and others. But it's really spiritual things or even possibly spiritual people. Maybe speaking to these people who fancied themselves in Corinth as especially spiritual, these super apostles who were competing with Paul and putting him down, and he needs to defend his ministry in light of them. But this is a general passage on spiritual things or spiritual people. And so we're getting vital understanding here of what the work of the Spirit is like, what it's for, how it works. So much for us to learn this morning. Uh, Now concerning spiritual things, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. This is interesting. Again, he's combating spiritual arrogance in Corinth that's questioning his authority and the gospel's truthfulness. And so he's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant. Maybe there's a, a little bit of a humbling effort here saying, I I know you think you know uh, so much, but there are some things that you are showing ignorance in. And I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to be informed. And so that's the purpose here, is to inform them. You know, and again, here's a, a humbling thought he presents to them. You know that when you were pagans, Gentiles, before you were Christians, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, when you used to worship false god, when you were uh, uh, obeyers of idols, when you used to be pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. He wants to remind them that even though they think they've got so much, if not everything, figured out, he wants to remind them that don't forget You used to worship worthless idols. You used to give yourself in devotion and worship to things that couldn't even speak. So much of what will follow here are gifts the Spirit gives that enables us to speak words of truth and words of life. And here he's saying you used to worship things that not only didn't say words of life, they couldn't speak at all. He's really saying, remember how ignorant you used to be. Remember how misguided you used to be. Don't forget that. And we all need to know this, don't we? It is so easy to go from darkness to light, from believing lies to understanding truth, from being a child of wrath to a child of God. It is so easy to be pulled out of our desperate, helpless, lost, sinful condition and brought into relationship with God. And it is then so easy to forget what we've come from. Please, ask God to remind you frequently of what he saved you from. Spiritual arrogance is deadly. Nothing has killed a work of God more in the history of the church and throughout the Bible than spiritual arrogance, losing our humility that was necessary for us to become Christians in the first place. We've got to be humbled in the presence of Almighty God. It is so easy to learn a few things, see some victories and accomplishments in our Christian lives and be filled with arrogance Paul says previously that knowledge puffs up, that advancement in the Christian life should continually humble us, but it can have the opposite effect because our sin can start to filter into our Christian lives and lead us astray. He says, don't forget that you used to be carried away by idols. You, you, you were carried away. You were taken captive by empty idols of your own making. And now he wants to turn a corner and say, don't be carried away by them. Be carried away by the Spirit. Be enabled, empowered, and filled. Depend on the Spirit's work. Give yourself to Him and His work in your lives. Verse 3. 
Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Except in the Holy Spirit. He's calling us to live Spirit-empowered lives. And what he is saying to us here, what God wants us to know, is that when the Spirit is at work, we exalt Jesus. We depend on Jesus. We make him famous. We make him known. Because he's the only one who can truly help people and save people. And if we love people, we want nothing more than for them to meet him and know him and see him and depend on Jesus. And so Jesus is Lord is the result of spirit-enabled living and putting Jesus down, neglecting Jesus, even cursing Jesus, hating Jesus, using Jesus as just a curse word is the result of not living by the Spirit, not depending on the Spirit. And he's saying there are all sorts of experiences. We all live in a spiritual realm. But the question we need to keep asking is, is Jesus exalted when we claim to be having a spiritual experience? When we claim that God is at work, the question is, is Jesus exalted? Is he the one that people are being drawn to? That's the ultimate question here. Verses 1 through 3. Get at this. And we no longer are then people who just depend on our spiritual experiences. We have to depend on the Spirit's work, and when we do that, Jesus is exalted. This, this speaks to an interesting phrase you hear a lot these days, which is, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I'm into spiritual experiences and getting in touch with my spirituality, and maybe that's how you think, and that sounds like it's, it's so much more broadly acceptable. But to say I'm spiritual but not religious is really saying I, I don't want any standards by which I judge my spiritual experiences. And Paul is saying, look, you had spiritual experiences when you were worshiping foolish idols that weren't ever going to lead you to life because they weren't even alive. And so the question is not, are you having spiritual experiences, even when the ones that make you feel good? But when you say, when someone says, I, I'm spiritual but not religious, what they're saying is, is there's no body of truth. There's no standard by which I'm even able to judge my spiritual experiences. So what, what we're being told by God here this morning is spiritual experiences aren't enough. Even one that makes us feel the way we want to or, or have some sense of connection to something beyond ourselves or some sense of meaning. No, there needs to be a standard by which we judge our spiritual experiences. And that's what we have in this passage. We have a recognition that people in all religions and even with no religion have spiritual experiences. But we need to be discerning about these experiences and decide whether they're from God or not. Whether they'll lead us to life or not. Whether they'll really answer the questions we desperately need answers to. Whether or not those spiritual experiences are leading to life abundant and eternal and relationship with the one true God or not. People who want spiritual experiences, they, they don't just uh, want disorganized religion, they just want personalized religion. I've, I've become so aware through the years of my own foolishness, my own ability at self-deception, my selfishness, which just mystifies me and how easily it just takes over in my life. I need a standard outside of myself to evaluate all my experiences if I'm ever going to get to truth and the kind of life God calls me to. And thankfully, we have that in Christ. And so, the Spirit enables us to live as God would have us. It's important that we ask these questions. You know, Jonathan Edwards wrote a phenomenal book called The Religious Affections that was so helpful to me when I read it many years ago. And he gives distinguishing marks of a work of God. 
And here are five distinguishing marks of the work of God. A lot of people claim that God's working and, oh, isn't that God? And that's a God thing and, and, and all sorts of things. But how can we be sure it's really God at work and not just our own making? Listen to what Edward says. It's so helpful. This is a man whose preaching sparked the great awakening, the greatest religious revival, work of the Spirit we've seen in our nation, arguably. And here's what Edward says. It's very instructive. He says, when God's really at work, the esteem of Jesus is raised. The esteem of Jesus is raised. Just what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians. When you want to know, is this really God or is this some human manufactured work? Is Jesus being exalted? Not a ministry, not a man, not a, not a movement, but Jesus. Is it clear that he's the one that is being exalted, that be, people are being drawn to. Two, when Jesus is exalted, you know what always happens? The kingdom of Satan suffers. Anti-God, anti-Christ, uh, uh, things that are advancing evil and sin and destruction in the world, those things suffer. Those things take a major hit when God is really at work. Sin is reduced. You know, I've seen quite a few claims to revival in my life and an amazing spiritual work of God. But so often in the midst of those, sin is not taking a major hit. But anytime Jesus is exalted, we become aware of our sin, we, we become convicted by it, and we repent of it. And sin and evil and the causes of Satan suffer. Three, there's an increased devotion to the scriptures. This is so important. Oh, the Spirit brings experiences, but those experiences then are always judged and discerned in the light of the scriptures. So it's the Spirit of God, yes, working, but always in a way that's in line with the scriptures, with the word of God. And so we see scripture something people flee to and seek and want to know better. It's never the Bible and the Spirit. It's always the Word and the Spirit working together. After all, He is the one who inspires Scripture. And He's the one who draws us to it and enables us to understand it and be transformed by it. And so there's an increased devotion to the Scriptures, Edward says. And I think he's right in the money, and this is backed up in Scripture. Four, he says, there's increased discernment of truth and error. Suddenly everything that used to be gray isn't gray anymore. It's not blurry anymore. We see sin for what it is. We see righteousness for what it is. There's not constant confusion and debate about what every verse possibly means. The word of God now comes home to us in power. In five, what this all leads to is increased love for God. Love for people. Because when sin suffers, love increases. And so when we run claims to a work of God through these five things, we're greatly helped and we realize that spiritual experiences are not self-validating. People from all sorts of backgrounds and lives have spiritual experiences. And only spiritual experiences that exalt the Lordship of Christ are the true work of God and of the Spirit of God. And so this, this idea that you may even have said and think I'm spiritual but I'm not religious, could open the door to actually missing the kind of spiritual experiences we need most, we want to have most. And so Paul then goes on and explains and expounds on and unpacks what he means specifically by spiritual things, what spiritual people look like, how they live, verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Oh, that's just a wonderful summary statement on what the Spirit of God is all about. We see that then Christian living is Christ-like, self-sacrificial serving for the good of others to the glory of Christ. We could summarize this whole passage this way. Spiritual gifts are given to each one for the common good to build up the body to exalt Christ. Here it is again. Spiritual gifts are given to each one 
each one for the common good to build up the body to exalt Christ. So they're spiritual gifts. They're not of the Spirit. They're not just our wits or what we have learned to do by practice. But no, they're gifts. So they're of grace. They're given. They're not self-earned. There's no such thing, never has been, as a self-made man or woman. But gifts are grace-given enablings by God. And they're given to each one, it says. Everyone. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you've trusted Christ, if the Spirit's made you a new creature in Christ, that means you are not just a child of God. You're not just forgiven. You're not just righteous in God's sight now. You are a gifted member of the body. And your gifts are given by God. Particularly out of His wisdom and His empowering. And please take to heart that you are gifted. You know, I... I I actually see these bumper stickers all the time. My child is a gifted. My, I have a, my child's part of the gifted program. And, and these bumper stickers always make me kind of wonder what that home is like when you need to boast about how gifted your child is. But um, it, it's, it, oh, I'm, I probably got in trouble with that one. If you have the bumper sticker, fine. But let's have a conversation about why. But uh, do, do we really need to talk about being gifted? But here's the truth. This is wonderful. We are all gifted. <laughs> you know, wonderfully, last week, Kenny talked about by birth, we're all have-nots. But in the body of Christ, there are no more have-nots. When Christ, he said, is your only have, we all are now God's people. There are no more have-nots in the body of Christ. We now have everything we need in Jesus. And there is a general having in Christ, but there's a particular gifting. God has given you gifts to each one, Paul says. To each one. There's no one exempt from giftedness. We should all have bumper stickers in our car that say, I am a gifted child of God. I'm part of the gifted program that the Spirit's doing in the church. Yes, I made it in to the gifted and talented program. No, not talented, gifted. I'll talk about a distinction about that later on. But yeah, we're all gifted. We should all have the bumper sticker about how gifted we all are in the body of Christ as well as other things. Maybe we need giant bumper stickers that say we are forgiven, adopted, righteous, uh, sanctified saints, and we're gifted. That's, that's what God is saying. Each one has been gifted. We've been enabled to function as God's people to build up the body and exalt Jesus in the process. And did you hear how beautifully Trinitarian this is? So it's the Spirit who's the focus of this passage, but beautifully, the Bible can't talk about the Spirit without necessarily then talking about the Son and the Father, and that's exactly what happens. Did you hear how this one God is the triune Father, Son, and Spirit? Did you hear it? Now, there are varieties of gifts in verse 4, but the same Spirit. Notice the variation in the way he's talking about ways God blesses us to build up the body and exalt Christ. Several ways. Uh, So we've got gifts, we've got service, we've got activities, and we've got manifestations. And they're all coming from the one God in three persons. Same spirit. There are varieties of service but the same lord this word lord kurios in the new testament is the lord jesus that's who this is referring to and when we see god except for eight times in the new testament this word theos that's referring to the father as it is here but it's the same god the father who empowers them all in everyone oh did you, did you hear that the father son and spirit the father sends the son The Son sends the Spirit. The Spirit exalts the Son. The Son points us to the Father. The Father says, have you seen my Son? And the Son says, make sure you depend on the Spirit. And on and on it goes. It's a beautiful Father, Son, Spirit, one God working for our good and for the glory of God. 
And so we have this beautiful, diverse body with diverse giftings, but by the one triune God. So in verses 4 through 7, we see that there's one diverse body because there's one triune God. So there's a oneness and a diversity, which is one of our ministry values here at Grace. We want the body of Christ to be wonderfully diverse and unified. And so we seek this as the Spirit works in our lives. He's the one God who empowers them all in everyone, you included, you kids included, you teens included, all of you who are part of this local church. Those of you listening, parts of other local churches and the body in general, universally, you are gifted to build up the body. You're gifted to do this, empowered by God to do this. And then he gets specific, even more specific about what these gifts are. Verse 8, for to one is given through the spirit of utterance, of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing, literally plural healings, by the one spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. So then in verses 8 through 10, he gets specific. But what I don't want to do here, in the midst of understanding the specific gifts here, is to somehow think that this is an exhaustive list or in some way uh, list in order of priority. Because there are several times in the Bible that the gifts of the Spirit are talked about, and what I think becomes clear when we see this in, say, Ephesians 4, or, or this passage, or Romans 12, or 1 Peter 4, is that these lists, when you add them all up, aren't exhaustive. These lists aren't ranked in how this one's way more important than this one, but they're given to us to give examples of ways God works in our lives. And so you do. You have this utterance of wisdom and knowledge, this ability to bring teaching, to bring understanding, to bring clarity of God and his ways to the body, to the people of God. Some have the gift of faith. We all have saving faith if we're Christians, but, but I've experienced this. Walt and Sherry Hare have been great examples to me through the years. I believe they both have the gift of faith, not saving faith. We all have that as Christians, but in a way to trust God, to step out and say, I believe God's going to provide. Let's go. What if we did this? And that gift of faith is something we see among God's people. The gift of healings. God is still delivering a decisive blow to one of the main effects of sin and the curse, and that's disease and sickness. God still heals people, and we pray for healing all the time. We are right now in our church praying for quite a few people. And he gives some people at times an ability to pray in effective ways. I don't think there are healers and, and you start a healing ministry, but there are healings God enables. And some people, I think, often who have the gift of faith, pray in this way by one spirit. God does miraculous things still in this day he does. To another prophecy, the ability to understand things, not just because you have intellectual understanding. The ability to distinguish between spirits, spiritual discernment. We desperately need this. And there are certain people among God's people who have a, a level of discernment that is a clear gifting. I don't think this necessarily is something you have through your whole life, but it's something God enables you for a particular purpose and time. Various tongues. This ability either to speak foreign languages and advance God's purposes in that or a language no one knows for edification of the body it must be and for interpretation of these tongues so the body is edified. And so there's specificity here, but verse 11 beautifully summarizes this. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions each one individually as he wills. You know, Tim Keller's been very helpful to me in thinking about the gifts of the Spirit and the ways he works. And I had never thought about this until I heard him talk about it, but I do think he's really onto something when he says all the gifts, whenever they're listed in the Bible, 
seem to be oriented around three primary offices Christ fulfills, prophet, priest, and king. It seems like uh, there are gifts that you could see as prophetic gifts. In other words, representing God before people. So we think about prophetic gifts, and they're ones like evangelism, or teaching, or prophecy, or speaking, or knowledge. There are priestly gifts, which are coming alongside people and representing people before God, mediating with compassion. Gifts like encouragement, and helps, and healing, and pastoring, and serving, and sharing, and mercy. Helping in ways that come alongside, don't dominate, don't just take over. Um, you know, like a lot of tech guys can do. Whenever I ask people for help with my technology, sometimes I, I'm, I do it with fear that any moment they'll get frustrated at my ignorance and just say, just get up, get out of the way, let me just do it. And that's not helpful to me. And that's not what helps ministries looks like. It's people who like the Spirit himself come alongside others and take them by the hand and put their arm around them. It seems like there are priestly gifts and then kingly gifts. Ones where we bring direction and leadership and organization, like apostleship and leadership and administration and wisdom and faith that says, let's go, and this is the way we're going, that cast vision in that way. And we all may have aspects of these, but it does seem that God's people typically are oriented toward prophetic, priestly, or kingly kinds of gifts. And in that, we represent Jesus. We bring the presence of Christ as the Spirit works, who is the great prophet, priest, and king. And so it's not just what we're good at. The, the Spirit's in charge, and he determines to whom he'll give these gifts. One of the books that's really also helped me on this is Ken Birding's book, What Are the Spiritual Gifts? Rethinking the Conventional View. And I think he's really gotten something. I wish this book were far more influential than it is. But he's convinced we've Americanized our thinking about the gifts. When, when the Spirit blesses us, we tend to think, oh yes, this is what I'm really good at. Which, which could be just a talent we have, something that comes naturally to us, easily to us, and we tend to think that's the best way to discern the gifts. But I think Ken Birding really is on to something when he says, these aren't things that just come easily you're really good at. Actually, they're often in the Bible, ministry opportunities, he would say, they're always ministry opportunities that God brings your way that he then enables you to do almost always out of your weakness. Not, about your, not out of your strength, not what you're good at. And as we look at these in the Bible, it's so true from Moses, who didn't seem gifted at all to take on Pharaoh, to P Peter, uh, who didn't seem gifted at all to be the, this, this incredibly influential missionary, but God enables us out of our weakness to do amazing things. Now, when he enables us, it can feel hey, I'm good at this. It, it can feel life-giving. It can feel like, wow, this is what I was made to do. But it's not because God's just given you this thing. No, he brings opportunities to serve your way and then gives you an ability to do it that makes you feel like you're being carried along by the Spirit in the process. This is what Birding says. Paul's lists are lists of ministry assignments that are given by the Spirit. The spiritual gifts should not be thought of as fundamentally the abilities to do ministry. They're, they're thought of as ministries themselves. And we can make spiritual gifts so self-absorbed. Oh yes, these are my three gifts and I'd like a job description accordingly, please. Uh, or, or we can feed our narcissism or how much we love to think about ourselves by taking these surveys that can be helpful but, but also can lead us down the road of narrowing our ministries rather than broadening them. Actually making them a thing of the flesh more than the thing of the spirit if we're not careful. And so we've got to see the spiritual gifts as gifts of the spirit and we've got to seek to be used by God whatever the opportunity that comes our way may be. Spiritual gifts are given to each one for the common good, to build up the body of Christ and exalt Christ. And, and Keller says we all have this gift matrix, a, a unique and particular uh, ability to contribute in just the way God has called you to contribute. 
And that's a wonderful thing to realize. Listen to Ephesians 2.10. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. His workmanship, his, his beautiful creations, created for good works, not just to be sanctified and deep in Jesus and have intimacy with him, but out of all of that, to be used by him for good works, to build up the body, to exalt Christ. And we recognize that we all have these abilities and it's something we can move into with confidence and boldness. Now, we do need to make a distinction between fruit of the Spirit and gifts of the Spirit. All Christians should have all the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These things that embody the character of Christ. We're all seeking those. But we don't all have the same level of gifts from God. We should all have the fruit of the Spirit. And we've got to make sure that our expression of our gifts is grounded in our experience of the fruit of the Spirit. There are a lot of people who are operating even out of gifts God's given them, but without the fruit of the Spirit, Christ-like character at the core of it. And, and that's like a computer without a battery. It's like a tire without air. It's like a car without an engine. There's a hollowness to it. And God can even use it, but there's a hollowness to it. And when we see prominent Christian leaders fall morally, showing a bankrupt life in the core of who they are, we need to realize that they were probably operating out of gifts, but not fruit. And we've got to seek the fruit of the Spirit as the core of who we are and how we minister. And it's deadly and wrong to use gifts without the fruit at the heart of it all. And it's only as we humbly serve <clears throat> that we discover how God wants to use us. Oh, operating out of our gifts leads to an understanding of ourselves. It leads to a deeper connection with people. There's no way to get connected to people better, in my experience, than getting shoulder to shoulder and serving alongside them. Which is why it's just so beautiful to see people at Grace so eagerly doing that and willingly doing that. And through the years, I've seen people come to Grace and those who dive in and serve and exercise the gifting God's given them are the ones who experience relationship and fellowship and community most. But here's the thing. You will find out who you are. You will experience community. You will feel good when you accomplish things, exercising the gifts God's given you. But if you're doing it for those reasons, you're actually missing the point. You actually won't have the community or the self-understanding or the fulfillment that God actually wants you to have as you exercise those gifts. We don't exercise the gifts of the Spirit so that we will be connected to people primarily, although that's a wonderful benefit, or so we'll have some understanding of ourselves and how God has gifted us. Or we don't exercise these gifts primarily because we want to feel good, although that happens. We exercise these gifts first because Jesus depended on the Spirit. He rejoiced in the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He's our example in all things. And so we follow in his footsteps and depend on the Spirit. But ultimately, the greatest reason we self-sacrificially serve depending on the Spirit is because that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus gave himself to us as the Spirit anointed him for ministry, leads him throughout his ministry, enables him, empowers him throughout his ministry. He's not primarily our example, although he is that. He's primarily our substitute. The fulfillment of a spirit-led, spirit-enabled application of God's work where he lays down his life. What's this all about? It means we serve humbly, but we do it realizing that we love because he first loved us. The Spirit's in charge. He gives these gifts. And we, so we don't cop out and say, well, that's not my gift. And, and we don't project our gift on other people saying, why aren't you more like I am? Or we don't uh, compare ourselves to others and feel like a loser because we don't have that gift. But no, we seek to be used by God as he enables us to be used in ways we never thought imaginable. 
Listen to what Paul says to the Romans. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by, by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So it's loving like Jesus because he first loved us. In, in just a few verses, Paul is going to say in 1 Corinthians 13, I, though I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. There's no greater love than the love that God's love for us in sending his son to take our place. That's what we find in the gospel, that Jesus is the one sent by the Father, enabled by the Spirit, to show us and be for us a Spirit-enabled life. I love that Jackson said a couple of weeks ago that Jesus is the only person who's ever perfectly lived out his gender. And Jesus is the only person who's ever perfectly lived out dependence on the Spirit and the kind of self-sacrificial, lay-down-your-life love that we desperately needed him to do for us. 1 John 4 says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son in the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the one who satisfied God's righteous justice. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever, ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Oh, we will recognize there are things that God has blessed us and enabled us to do. We will even have passions for those things at times. But in the church, we've got to lead with the opportunities, the ministry needs that come our way. A lot of times you don't even realize what you're good at until you give yourself to something that's needing to be done. A lot of times you don't experience the, the passion or the ability until you give yourself. We can be so selective with a designer ministry based on what we want to do or think we're good at instead of saying, Lord, I want to be used among the people of God. So pick up a mop and depend on the Spirit. That's the mentality we need to have. Pick up some trash in the parking lot on your way in the church, depending on the Spirit, and see what the needs are in our lives. It doesn't mean we don't pay attention to what we love to do or what we feel comes rather easily to us, but we can't lead with those things. We've got to lead with God. What are the needs that you can enable me to meet and help God's people be built up through that meeting of those needs. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's what we realize is the heart of it all. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the example of a self-sacrificial, build up the body, glory to God sort of life. And Jesus does that in our place. You know, it's fascinating to think about when I grew up. I grew up uh, right, I, I was born right as what's called the charismatic renewal was starting to take place. One of my professors in graduate school, Walter Elwell, said, I was convinced that revival was going to come through good scholarship, which is why I went and got a PhD in New Testament. And he said, and as I was doing this, the charismatic renewal swept the world and did things that I could never imagine would happen in my lifetime. See, when the Spirit takes over, amazing things happen. I didn't even realize it at the time, but I was growing up during what was called the charismatic renewal, and it caused lots of conflict and lots of disagreement and camps in the church. And, and I'm happy to say through the years, I've watched this be one area of charismatic, non-charismatic, which are terrible terms to use. Do you know what charismata means? It, it means the favor of God, the, the blessing of God, the grace of God toward us. I want to be one of those who's benefiting from that. It's not, we've got the Bible, we've got the Spirit. No, I'm so thankful that in my lifetime, I think I've seen a beautiful coming together of, of formerly very different camps, but God used that renewal I grew up in to bring about an amazing revival 
in the Roman Catholic Church where I remember my Catholic friends were reading their Bibles for the first time in their lives. They were having experiences with the Spirit they never thought imaginable. The Jesus movement that actually historically started here in Southern California, you could point back to being part of that renewal. Calvary Chapel grew up in that. The Vineyard grew up in that. And we've seen a, a lot of disagreement, sadly, and a lot of fighting. And, and, and how sad that the gifts of God cause division in the church. When the point is building up the body, bringing a unity as the Spirit works. So as we depend on Jesus, his work in our lives, there will be some really important correctives here. We won't have a self-defined spirituality. We won't have a consumer entitlement mentality saying, what's in it for me? We won't have any competition or envy in the body of Christ. We won't have any sense of superiority or inferiority in the body of Christ based on our gifting. We won't have an overemphasis on just natural things or supernatural things, but we'll depend on the Spirit to work out our discipleship on a daily basis. And ultimately, we won't be then operating in the flesh, but operating in the Spirit. And when we do this, we can see God's people built up and the gospel advance and Jesus exalted. This is how he fulfills the Great Commission. Remember Jesus gave the Great Commission and he said, go and make disciples of all nations, but don't move a muscle until the Spirit comes in power. Well, the fact is he has come in power. And on the day of Pentecost, he came in a new covenant way like he had never come before. And he's been pouring out his power and presence and gifts ever since. And we as God's people need to wake up in the morning and say, God, by the Spirit's power, would you fill me and enable me and empower me and equip me not just to become more like Jesus, but help others as well. That's what our mission and vision of grace is about, to present everyone mature in Christ. And we will never do that if we don't, as our mission and vision says, depend on the Spirit. We're depending on the Spirit to do this. And so may God use his word this week and the weeks to come as we bear down on this even more to enable us by the Spirit's power to fulfill our purpose as disciples and ministers of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, help us in this amazing adventure of being your children and disciples and ministers and ambassadors Lord, help us to do this well for your glory and for the good of others along the way. Father, thank you that the spirit and the gifts are ours, as well as the right man on our side, Jesus. And Lord, thank you that in him, the spirit, and in Jesus, we have the victory and we have the power we need to overcome and help others do the same. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.